HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman who inspires me with their vision, their compassion, and the way that they live their life. Today, I'm interviewing Claudette Zapata. I met Claudette when we were doing a project together for City Harvest, which is a New York City hunger relief organization, something that's so important right now as we're combating the coronavirus and trying to feed the most vulnerable populations among us. Uh, Claudette is an extraordinary chef. She was on Top Chef Mexico, Top Chef US. She had a restaurant in San Diego called El Jardin. Um, Claudette, welcome to Speaking Broadly. Thank you for having me. It's truly an honor. At this moment in time when we're all staying at home, I wonder how you're taking care of your family, which is, in what I understand of your life, the very most important thing to you. It is. I have a very small nucleus, um, which is just my two kids and myself at, in San Diego. My mom is about five minutes from us, which we're very tight. I work a lot. The industry talks about chef widows. Um, we don't talk enough about chef orphans. <laughs> my kids have grown up incredibly independent, and it's really important for me to keep a healthy house mentally and nourished and I was just reflecting on the fact that my kids are kind of getting annoyed by me and I was like oh I get it because I'm never home and they're like oh now we have now we have a mom (laughs) yeah I'm cooking a lot more I'm in their face a lot more (laughs) and how do you feel about that that notion of having orphaned kids or now you're around all the time and they're like oh what are you doing here do you have complicated feelings about that or that's just what motherhood has meant to you You know, some days I have very positive thoughts. I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. And other days I'm going, oh my God, I don't know how bad I'm going to mess them up. Maybe they've been good this whole time because I haven't been around them. But my kids and I grew up together. You know, I became a mom at 18 and my son will be 17 in July. So, and it's like having roommates at this point where we all rallied together and the greater good has always been, well, mom works so much because you guys have expensive taste and (laughs) I need to put food in the fridge. And right now it's just kind of at a stalemate and we're doing the best that we can, but we're, I'm really 
adamant about speaking your feelings. So I talk to my kids all the time of like, you look frustrated, talk to me. You know, I don't let them keep things bottled up and that might be annoying to them, but I think it's really important to maintain that. What are you feeling right now? Um, I'm feeling a little anxious. I am feeling a little bit stressed out for the following months. When this happened, I had six months of work. Just the slate was completely wiped clean. And that's terrifying for someone that's technically unemployed and a single mother of two teenagers. But we've been through worse times. I've been in the welfare line not too long ago. So we're always going to make it. We're pretty good at going without. You've said that you grew up really poor and you had tough times at the get-go and when you've watched people go through other tough times you're like oh yeah we've been there before can you just take us back to when you were growing up you were growing up partly in San Diego and partly in uh, Tijuana yeah I was born in San Diego and we grew up in Tijuana up until mid-90s when it started getting pretty dangerous for the Tijuana area my dad's like well let's just move across the border to San Diego my dad's kind of a gypsy soul so he was an attorney, but self-employed with a wanderlust heart. So incredible highs, incredible lows. We lost everything by my middle school, about seventh grade. We lost our house, foreclosed, all the, all the cars got repossessed. My dad um, is not a great businessman and he likes to spend and live outside of his means. So we just, we never had a stable household since we lived in Tijuana since my, my entire childhood. If he got a little bit of money, it was great. Oh my God, you know, like steak every night. And then all of a sudden we would lose everything and it was a rice and bean scarce diet. I always felt like the bottom was going to fall out. Like I always felt that like uncertainty my entire life. And a lot of that had to do with just having a lot and then having zero. And that was just my entire childhood. Did that change the way that you have lived your life? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I always say this line and it's kind of fun. The kids kind of roll their eyes at me. But I said, if you live like you're poor, you're never going to be poor. We live within our means. If you don't have the money for it, you don't need it. Right. So I don't have credit cards that are astronomical. Everything is just to build so I can help them when they become adults and they need my help, you know, a school loan or something. I remember when I got to college, I didn't get to finish culinary school because after two semesters, they said, you need to do your personal loans. And my parents didn't qualify for anything. And that was really hard. And I said, I don't ever want my kids to go without because of something that I messed up on or that I couldn't control. And my parents just weren't taught these skills. They weren't taught money management. So it's really important for me to teach my kids money management and living within our means, especially in times like this where there's no money coming in. So it's like, okay, budgets, and does this make sense? Do we need this? Can you go without? And then we always kind of do that checklist. Did you learn that skill somewhere? I understand that your parents didn't teach you. I think that people who are listening, they might be confronting this budget situation for, not if not the first time, in a much more dire way. Yeah, I think going through restaurants really taught me that as I went up through the ranks in restaurants and having to, you know, answer for food costs and budgets. And I mean, obviously your numbers are much smaller in a personal budget, but understanding that what comes in has to match which what goes out and it can't be an influx of more going out than coming in you know and it's just that balance it's a skill that I'm still working on you know sometimes I'm like oh I'll see something you know on social media where they just flood you with things to buy and you're like oh that sounds cool and then I'm like ah shit I like have to like pause myself and then go it doesn't meet the budget no matter how much I want it it just doesn't fit it when you're growing up in Mexico, you spend a lot of time with your aunt, who 
had a restaurant, or maybe she still does. Does your aunt still have restaurants in Tijuana? Uh, she has a restaurant in Guadalajara, uh, my aunt Lorenza, and she was retired by her kids in 2005. I know that you cooked with her. What, what type of food was she making, and was that an inspiration for the cooking you've done since? Her restaurant, Las Calandrias, it started out when she had a very small little place with 10 tables. All she did was pozole and tostadas de pozole. So imagine all your pozole toppings just on a tostada. And that was all she did for almost 15 years. And then uh, this bigger restaurant became available. So she went into that and basically started a fonda, which is traditional like home style Mexican food, uh, very soulful, quote unquote, ugly, delicious. And that was my entire childhood. I wasn't alive for the little one. Um, so when I came into the picture, the big restaurant was in operation and I was sent about five to six months out of the year to Guadalajara with her. And I slept in the middle between her and my cousin. And uh, it was just such a beautiful life. In the morning, we'd wake up and we'd go to the market. And my aunt spent every single hour of every single day inside this restaurant. And when I mean like every single hour, the only time she left was to get her manicure and her, her hair dyed red. So she always had like candy apple red nails and she always had red hair. So that's the only thing she ever did for self-maintenance and like self-care. But other than that, she was inside the restaurant. It was Doña Lore, and she ruled with a iron fist. But everyone, I mean, to this day, she's just so charismatic. Everyone loves her. I went to the market when we were filming Migrant Kitchen with her. And her restaurant hasn't been in operation for almost, what, 15 years? That was last year, so 14 years. And people still, like, scream through the market, you know, her name. And she literally doesn't even park. She pulls her car in and throws the keys to the guy that is watching the cars. And he parks it for her. I'm like, how? who is this woman? Like, I didn't realize this, that she had this, like, magic pull her entire life. And I just loved witnessing it as an adult. I love that image that you paint of the, the hair and the nails. And I can't help but take this moment to ask you about your own hair. Watching you over time, for anyone who's listening, because obviously there's no visual here, I've seen your hair green, which when we were doing City Harvest was so perfect because green is actually their color. I was like, did you do that on purpose? And then I've seen it magenta and then it's brown. And tell me about like your hair and does it have anything to do with your aunt? So I was a very willful child, and in seventh grade, I remember asking my mom, can I wear makeup? Can I dye my hair? And it was no, no, I couldn't even shave my legs, and I was in middle school. So I was the only girl. I had brothers. I had three brothers, and I was the only daughter in the household. But I was incredibly rebellious, and I remember watching Gwen Stefani. I discovered Gwen Stefani in my seventh grade year. And next thing you know, I was wanting plaid pants, a chain on my belt, and I wanted a crop top and blonde, 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 white, blonde hair. And I remember buying a sun in without my mom knowing and peroxide basically on my whole head. <laughs> and that was the first instant, like, holy crap, you can change your entire look. And it's just hair, right? It grows back. And... Since then, it's just kind of been like, I always feel like I can be as adventurous as I want with my hair because it's who I am. It's a way of my self-expression, as are my tattoos, and my hair just fluctuates per my mood. Did you get in trouble? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll start with your hair, and then we'll hear about the rest of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, 
Yeah. I, I, I left my house. I got kicked out of my house when I was 15. I got kicked out of my house when I was 16. And I moved out when I was 17. So when I say I was a very willful, rebellious child, I really pushed my parents. And my dad was a... My dad was born in 1937. And he was sent at seven years old to a convent to be raised by nuns because he was also a very willful child. And my grandfather at one point told my grandmother, if you don't send him away, I will kill him. I mean, this was a different time. And in Mexico and my grandfather was incredibly uh, angry at my dad all the time and he was the oldest so my grandmother in a panic sent him to the convent and then from there he went to military school so then imagine being raised a bunch of, with a just men for his entire childhood from nine eight nine to 18 he was in a military school um so having a daughter was a very big change and a very um hard experience for my father right and I know that I was him and he and he didn't recognize that but I was the same willful child he was um but I was a girl so I came with a whole other slew of problems that I could get pregnant and that I could get raped and all these things that always were in his head of that I wasn't ever safe and that I was gonna end up in drugs and I just found it super comical and I just called him like oh you're just old you don't get it and I was just always very rebellious and always pushed 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 which resulted of me having to leave at 15 and leave at 16 and what got you kicked out of the house at 15 he thought I got I had makeup on and I wasn't allowed to wear makeup. Okay, that's uh, amazing as the as the turning point. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's the physical abuse. You know, getting hit was not out of the norm, you know, and it, and it got to a point where I was like, "F this. I'm tired of getting my ass kicked all the time for being for trying to just be a teenager and trying to experiment with lipstick and at that point I didn't even have lipstick on it's just my the tint of my lips is a little bit darker and he freaked out on me and so I would just called my friend and I said can I stay over and I stayed for a few months at her house that sounds like an excellent resolution to an intractable problem I mean someone who doesn't understand you and doesn't understand like what it is to be a teenager because he didn't really he didn't do it himself he didn't go through it and when he did go through it it was so strict that he couldn't even possibly relate. Well, I'm, I'm sure that being pregnant at 18, although you were out of the house, must have also created some conflict at home. Oh, yeah. Um, my father didn't speak to me. That's when he was still living in San Diego. He didn't speak to me until my son was born. He, I know he doesn't know their birthdays. Um, he doesn't know their middle names. He doesn't know their last name. You know, it's like my dad moved to Mexico, went back to Nayarit where he was born uh, a couple years ago. And I don't know his cell phone number. He's just such a gypsy soul. And it's so funny because like we have so much in common as, as people and as like driven individuals and wanderlust. But then the other half of me is very much my mom where it's very practical and um, we analyze and we think before we act. But I can see every once in a while I'll get that like impulsiveness and I'm like, oh, that's my father showing up, you know, and it's just weird how you navigate through your genetics that you just you can't deny it. You just learn how to go through those feelings and adjust accordingly. I mean, the way that you've brought up your kids, how did you even know what to do? Was it trying to do the opposite? Like, where did you find inside yourself the way to give them freedom and trust them, which sounds like is what you've been quite successful at doing? 
Yeah, we have our good and bad moments. You know, there are teenagers and they are going to test me. My daughter's currently testing me with a lot of gumption for sure. But I just always think, you know, how I opened when I opened my restaurant, it was the pro con list of like every good restaurant I ever came up in and every bad restaurant. And what did I want to start my restaurant with? And that's kind of how I do my parenting. It's like, okay, what didn't I like when I was a kid? And what, what, where did I not feel heard? And where could I not express myself? And it's those questions that I know my kids so well. I know when they're lying. I know when they're happy, when they're sad, when there's something wrong. Um, I can feel the energy shift. And I'm a, you know, I'm an empath. And when I say that, I mean it in all the sense of the word. Like I feel everything a little too much. Like I'm just a walking, you know, open wound. It's completely by trial and error. Like I had, there's no plan. I n- have never read a parenting book. I just know how I like to be treated, and it's the golden rule, right? Like you're taught that since you're a child, uh, and a lot of people forget. But I, I want to be respected, and I want to be heard, and I want my kids to understand that I have feelings too. I can be their mom, but at the end of the day, I'm still a woman with feelings. So, what was it like when you're growing up, being so deeply a part of? what I imagine would have to be two separate cultures, the Mexican culture and then the American or Americanized culture in San Diego. I grew up in Imperial Beach, which is the closest beach town to the border. So we were about eight minutes from the border. Um, The Tijuana Estuary, which is in Imperial Beach, butts up to the Tijuana River, where you would get a lot of people trying to cross and we moved so close so we would be so close to the border into Mexico and uh, when we first crossed we would still cross almost on a daily basis back to TJ because my dad's business he was operating out of Tijuana he was operating out of Mexico I didn't realize that I was different because in elementary school all the kids in my classroom there was four tracks track A, B, C, and D and we were track B which was bilingual So most of the kids in my class were Mexican kids, and we spoke Spanish in our class. Um, It wasn't until a couple different moments where I realized we were different. One, when we first crossed the border, and we lived in the the complex where it's like um, the projects, and my brother was called a beaner, and I realized what skinheads were. And when you saw a bomber jacket and Doc Martens, you crossed the street, you know, you didn't make eye contact. Um, And then in in the school, there was an old playground and a new playground. And we were told, no, the beaners in the class, you know, track B, the Mexican kids have to use the old playground. um, And we weren't allowed on the new one. And now when I reflect as a kid, you're just like, you don't even think about what they're saying. You're just like, why can't I use the new one? So I remember as a kid, I wouldn't go to the playground. My one of my best friends was my fifth and sixth grade teacher. And to this day, She was like my surrogate mom mom, and I would rather help her in her classroom than go out and play because I did not like interacting with kids that were mean to us. Um, So I would be in the classroom, you know, helping her with the activities or whatever that she was going to do with us. Or she would take me to Carl's Jr. with her and her other the other teacher. So I was always very much older for my age than I was. Like I was, I guess, you know, just an old soul. I've always been an old soul. How did that shape the way that you work in restaurants or the way that you have worked with your teams? I mean, there's no room for hate. There's no room for I'm better than you. There's no room for egos in any kitchen that I run. Um, Because since I was a very small child, I remember being different. And 
growing up in the two different cultures and in my household, we only spoke Spanish. Um, so most first generation kids are told only speak English, don't speak Spanish because you want to fit into the culture. And my dad was the complete opposite. We were so proud to be Mexican that in our house, we only spoke Spanish. And we were we weren't Chicanos, we were Mexican. And it was just very much ingrained into us. Um, and when I started interacting more, you know, uh, in my quinceañera, I had a quinceañera. My dad had no money and was like low budget. So it was just a bunch of kids, right, at a party in TJ. And all of my, the, the court, the girls, you have a court of boys and girls. All the girls were American girls, were part of the cheer team. And not one Mexican girl was on my court because those were my best friends. My best friends were American girls. And... I related more to them because I liked the music that they listened to. I liked the fashion styles of the American teenage girl. And I would go to Mexico and I would get makeovers. My aunt would like literally from head to toe would change what I was wearing. She would change my hair. She would she gave me my first highlights and a bob. Um, so every time I came back from Guadalajara, I came looking like a Mexican teenager. And then I would get to Imperial Beach and then I would, you know, mess my hair up diet all blonde and then look like a punk and then I would go through different phases of just really trying to figure out who the hell I was and now it's manifested to there's no hate and I want everyone's freak flag to fly as high as possible and I see it in the cooks that come into my kitchens that have been oppressed from in one place or another right either in their household or in their jobs prior and I'm kind of like the I'm the Peter Pan to my lost boys and girls. Like I, I love seeing a bunch of kids come out of their shell in my kitchen because I give them that freedom and I give them that space to be protected. And, you know, like I try to give the quiet one strength to like, don't you ever let anyone disrespect you. And if I, if I ever say something that hurts your feelings, please call me on it because it's not intentional. And I don't know any, many chefs that do that. I don't know many chefs that care about their employees to that extent because I treat them almost like they were my kids and that's something that that maternal instinct crosses over into my job completely organically. You've said that motherhood was a great training. Is that why you say that? Yeah, I think motherhood is a good training and then being a chef to young cooks has helped me in my mothering as well. I have millennial cooks and my kids are millennials. My kids aren't that far away from the ages of my cooks. So I try to figure out like, okay, I'm being irrational because I'm trying to raise them the way I was raised and that's not right, you know? And then it's a constant, I have to reflect every single day on like what I did wrong. I find it a very good sobering task to meditate and to journal and to figure out like how to unscrew all the things and all the habits that were ingrained to me as a child. Something that strikes me is that your father with a military background is actually the way French brigades were run, where there's one person in charge and everyone falls in line. And you've opted to run your kitchen not as like a French brigade, but instead as the way that you wanted to be treated and, and then the way that you've evolved in giving everybody a voice. It's such an interesting sort of a parallel in the kitchen and in your life. Yeah, when I started my career, I definitely started more on the militant side and more on the, you know, here's your box, don't get out of your box because that's how I was taught. That's how I came up in that industry 
where my chef every single day told me that I was a piece of shit and that I didn't know how to cook. And then if I did something wrong, he would throw all of my prep away, would make an example of someone and humiliate and sort of haze that other person for doing something wrong in front of all of us. And I was like, I get it. Hate breeds hate. Hate breeds hate. And then my kids at that point were very little. So I, they hadn't developed their personalities and their willfulness. And now I see it from day to day of like, okay, how can I make every person feel seen in a restaurant, right? And then when I was also coming up in the industry, if the grill guy didn't show up, oh my God, it was catastrophe, right? Because there was only one grill guy and that's, he's the best, it's the grill guy. And there was only one saucier and one guy on saute. And those were your stations, you owned your stations. And by the time I opened El Jardin, I had gone through the gamut of like what to do, what not to do in restaurants. And my restaurant operated where everyone knew everything from the front to the back. Everyone could expo, everyone could do a grill, everyone could do pastry. We all harvested in the garden. And that was something that was very important for me to, one, give everyone the opportunity to be as well-rounded cooks as possible. And two, to feel that, that they weren't just cooks, that they were going to be chefs one day. And that was just a school. All the good press, all the stuff that we, we hear, it doesn't come from me being this pushover, softy. Like, we work really hard. And then we also, I, I give a lot. I give probably too much, some would say. The people that mind don't matter and the people that don't mind matter. And I always kind of like say that to myself. I'm like, you know what? If people misconstrue my put down your head attitude of like, I I don't care about complaining. I want solutions, not problems. The cream of the crop will rise, you know, and all those all those cliche phrases. They're cliches, but they're true. Now that we're in the time of Corona and it's so hard to do something for others, because as you said, you had six months of work dry up. I had a similar situation of things that I was working on, but you and I probably can do things from home. A lot of the cooks and a lot of the people that you employed or dishwashers don't have that opportunity. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, for me, I've been in this industry since I was 15, getting paid. And throughout my entire career, I became a mom at 18. So I've always had to make ends meet doing something that I might not love, but I needed to put food on the table. So I would work a night shift as a cook and I would work in the daytime cashing checks at a check cashing store in the returns department at Ikea. Uh, I was a bookkeeper for three years for a nonprofit. I have all these extra resume fluff jobs that I've had to do because I had to make ends meet and I don't have an ego and I'm not I'm not too proud to beg and there's jobs that they can do at this point in time where they're gonna have to kind of suck it up and do these jobs that's such a good reminder I mean people actually are getting jobs now which is fantastic even with this slowdown so I feel like that's a it's a point of optimism in the midst of all this so we're gonna take a quick break And you're going to be salivating when we return, because when we return, we're going to talk about Claudette's incredible food, and we're going to learn about cooking in the time of coronavirus, but we're also just going to dive deep into the women of Mexico and some of the inspiration that Claudette has found there. So stay with us, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S. grown Montmorency Tart Cherry variety is the cherry with more. 
They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and today I have as my guest, Claudette Zapeda. So I want to know more about your food. I was reading Bon Appetit recently and was reading about your tacos, and I'd love to just hear a little bit about your dream taco. (laughs) Well, it's such a polarizing word. I feel like taco really gets people fired up, um, the word taco. And in the restaurant, I would see people get visibly upset if I, A, didn't have a taco, if the taco that I had on the menu wasn't to their liking and to what they're used to. And the fact of the matter is that when I grew up in my household, hazte un taco means make yourself a taco. And that was literally from whatever we were eating. A taco is whatever you have in front of you inside of a tortilla, that's a taco, right? A taco doesn't have these parameters of it has to have carne asada. It's not beef bourguignon when you're like, okay, yeah, beef bourguignon, you're going to know you're going to have burgundy, you know, you're going to have beef, you know, mushrooms. It doesn't have all those rules. Mexican food in general doesn't have so many restrictions. It really is a cuisine made out of resiliency of what you have and adaptation, right? So if you want to make birria with chicken, make birria with chicken. There's no Mexican food police that's going to be knocking your door down going, oh, hell no, you screwed the pooch. A taco for me is something that has right texture and it is filling and it is soulful. So in that case, it could be a taco with cheese inside and leftover stewed vegetables with a little bit of punch from a salsa that you have in the fridge or fresh cilantro that gives you that brightness. So a taco is really morphs into the kitchen sink. Like we talk about the kitchen sink salad, the kitchen sink soup. Well, a taco can also be that. A taco can be you're cleaning out your fridge and you have all these different things. Put it on a tortilla. Guess what? You have a taco. (laughs) Tell me about the taco of your childhood that was basically a taco with a pinch of salt. Yeah. So a a pellizcada has different meaning to different people. And some people say, no, that's not a pellizcada because their parents called something else that. But basically, when I was a child, the very first solid food that we ate and that my son ate at my aunt's restaurant was a freshly made corn tortilla with a pinch of salt. And then we, my aunt would roll it and then would pinch the whole thing so the salt wouldn't come out. Um, so imagine there's this mushed up piece of corn tortilla To this day, when I go to Oaxaca, the first thing is I go to the Molino, the market Molino, and they are grinding fresh tortillas, fresh nixamal. And that's the one thing that I eat. And it literally, it's that ratatouille moment where it's a transport. It sucks you into a different time, you know, in place. And it's one of the most satisfying things to have a freshly made corn tortilla with salt, nothing else, and just exhale. I like the idea of something so simple, having such a strong memory, particularly since right now you may have a lot of things in your 
pantry or you might not. So, you know, if you have a corn tortilla transformed by salt and add memory and you have something very, very special. Where did you learn the most about the food that you like to make? So my entire career up until 2015, I had been cooking other people's food. I had been cooking Italian, French, pastries, bread. I did a a stint butchering and I had always been doing what I thought I had to do in order to succeed, right? Like you go work at the, the best French place, you go work at the best Americana, like farm to table place. And then in 2015, I met Javier Placencia and I thought, wow, this guy is making the food that I know. He's from Tijuana. I grew up in Tijuana. The food that he is, he wants to cook and he wants to bring to San Diego, that's the food that I know. And then when we really started getting into it, I realized I didn't know shit. I didn't know shit about our food, about our cuisine. But then when I went to Top Chef Mexico, imagine like my tunnel vision. All of a sudden, I had my full peripheral open and I thought this is the uh, the vastness of our cuisine and the just the ingenuity that happens throughout hard times, good times, where you're from, where you're going. And I met the women that are the caretakers that UNESCO said that Mexican cuisine is a patrimony to humanity in 2003, I believe, was the first chapter that was started in Michoacan. And I was able to meet some of these women that are the caretakers of these recipes that are of the indigenous cultures of Mexico. And that's when it's really started opening up. And I dedicated two years after that from 2016 to 2018 of traveling throughout the entire country and really finding more so not so it's, it wasn't about the recipes. It was about the women and it was about the soul and just like the power behind Mexican women and I was sitting on floors made of dirt, you know, like, and I grew up, my uncle in Tijuana, my aunt would sweep every single day and they had dirt floors. Just seeing that growing up, you know, it makes you a different person. I'm not attached to material things at all in my life, literally. Like I could live out of a car. To me, material things, it's not what makes me. I think what makes me is the relationships that I have in life and cooking my food and cooking and going through Mexico and meeting these women really taught me that I come from some incredible stock and I come from some really strong, strong bloodlines of very powerful women and I needed to harness that. And in translating that power into my talent or my craft, which is food, and it doesn't matter what I cook, is if I put that intention into it and I put that love into my food, I could be serving a bowl of beans and people go, oh my God, this is the best beans I've ever had. Tell me some specific stories like where you were and what you ate and about the women because I understand that it's not about the recipe specifically but if it's about the women I want to get to know like one or two of them through your experience with them well one of my favorite trips that I took was uh, to Sonora in the northern desert of Mexico which uh, butts up to the gulf and we were going to it was a festival a chef festival that they do every year And I got invited to cook at it. And then they were doing a bunch of activities for us to experience Sonora throughout the week. And they invited uh, Juana Bravo. And Juana Bravo is also one of the, what is called the Cocinera Tradicional, which is a traditional cook of Michoacan and of the first chapter that UNESCO started in Mexico uh, for their indigenous cuisine. And she was making uh, these tamales that are called corundas. And they're one of the most iconic dishes of Michoacan. And there are these pyramid-shaped tamales that get uh, folded throughout 
instead of using corn husks or banana leaves, they use the, the leaves of the fresh corn stalk. So as the corn grows, all the, the leaves that grow off the stalks, they use those to steam the tamalemasa in. But they're stuffed with cheese or sometimes nothing. And so imagine just these tamales that are just masa sometimes if you don't have cheese. And then they're placed on top of a plate with a tomato caldillo, which is tomato, onions, garlic, and oregano, and that's it. And uh, topped with fresh crema and queso fresco or cotija. And it's the most simple, most humble dish you'll ever eat. But she was explaining to me as she was teaching us how to fold the leaves. And it was almost like folding a flag. If you were, have ever folded a flag where you go in, out, in, out. That's how you fold this corunda to be steamed. And I could see her mouth moving. And it got to the point where I was so curious of what she was mouthing, like what she was saying. I asked her and she said, well, sometimes I sing. Um, sometimes I pray. What I took from it was every single tamal has an intention placed into it. Um, that really hit me. I have a picture of a painted picture of her in my dining room. Like she was very iconic. I met her in Top Chef Mexico as well. You, you talk about food being infused with love and, you know, you can taste hate. You can, t you can taste emotion. But I think sometimes that's quite inadvertent. And what I like about what you just told me is that it's so intentional. Are there other women who stand out to you in that same way? I mean, my aunt, I just go to my aunt Lorenza. And when I was doing El Jardin, I was approached by Life and Time to do the Migrant Kitchen series. I told them the story behind the restaurant and the soul behind it, the inspiration, the intention behind what the restaurant I wanted it to be. And they said, cool, well, we've never left the city you know, wherever we film, it's very like one city based. And I said, well, to show you El Jardin, it wasn't open at the time. I said, I really need to show you where I've been um, or the places that have really moved me. So I took them to Mexico City, to Puebla, to in between Puebla and Mexico State. Um, there's a volcano, Popocatepetl, And at the base of Popo, there's all these indigenous cultures. And I met a family and the mother would make our mole at the restaurant. Uh, I would buy the base from her and import it into San Diego. But with my aunt, it was the first time me cooking with my aunt. Everyone always asked me for pictures of me in the, as a child in the kitchen. And all my pictures as a child is me eating. Like, I really love food. There was not one of me in the kitchen cooking. It's all of me eating. But I remember asking my aunt, like, okay, we're going to go. And I would love to make pozole with you because I make my pozole with where I've been and where I want to move my food to, right? But she makes pozole in such an old school way. And there is no messing around. How do you make pozole in an old school way? So you have to cook the head. So it has to have a pig head in with the corn. And it's a very specific corn. Cacahuacintle is the pozole corn. And it's a broader corn. It's flat. And it just swells up to the right size and it absorbs all the flavor and the pig head gets cooked with the corn so the corn actually has flavor most people cook the corn and nixtamalize it by itself and then they marry it with the base sauce it tastes disjointed right it tastes like a watery corn and then you taste the soup um, and my aunt said no you start and she was one of those first persons that taught me layering flavors and if you start seasoning and then you go up you end up with not having to season something so much or having to make up for it. If you started layering the flavors in the beginning, so pork head always goes in with the corn, always. From there, you start making your sauce and then your chilies. It was guajillo and ancho, always. And then this is just, again, every family has their way. 
but this is the way she does it and the oregano is dried and when you pinch the dried oregano into a soup you have to grind it in between your fingers to get the oil to come to the surface and it's a very almost religious <laughs> experience to cook with someone that is so adamant of not moving not changing and keeping everything in the way it should be and that's how you do it because that's how it's been done for the last 200 years or whatever you know and i love that <laughs> how does that relate to the way that you cook so the way i cook is completely opposite in a sense you know i always make it a very very honest intentional point in my food is to if i'm gonna make a dish that has history that has roots to pay tribute and understand where it started I always understand the root of what the dish is so if I'm making pozole I understand how to build the flavors of a traditional pozole but I also understand that where my trajectory has taken me and where I want to push my food to it involves experimentation it involves innovation it involves merging of everything that is around me that you cannot deny and because I am from the north Japanese and Chinese cuisine is such a part of who I am because I ate it almost every single day of my childhood because the best Chinese food is in Baja. All these flavors that we always had, you know, soy sauce in our pantry, we always had all these ingredients that most people wouldn't normally have in their pantry. You know, seeing kombu in my pantry wasn't rare. Seeing soy sauce or mirin in my pantry wasn't rare. It was just something that you had. So now my food is pay tribute to where it started, but push it forward to where I want it to go or where I where my voice is. And so all my pozoles, all my broths, all my moles start with a dashi kombu base. So a vegetarian ramen base. And then I layer my Mexican flavors because that's what it comes natural to me to do because of where I am, because of what I like to eat. If I don't like to eat something, I don't cook it. I don't cook eggplant very much because I don't really like eggplant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the privileges of a chef. Now, you worked in a French kitchen. You worked in an Italian kitchen. Do those flavors also make it into your food? And how do, how do you adapt that with the Mexican if you do? If you really at the very base of it is we're a magical food world. The moms cook the best. The moms taught us. And you think of Indian food, the curries of the world are moles of the world. It's the same thought process that goes behind it. So cooking in French and Italian restaurants, I took the techniques of a French restaurant and I took the simplicity of an Italian recipe and try to have it be part of my muscle memory. It's part of what comes natural to me throughout my career and knowing, okay, yeah, that's the right amount of chili. That's the right amount of salt. And I, I say this, like this line that's kind of, it's funny, but I do believe that there is natural talent in some of us. And it's like, how do you know when it's seasoned correctly? Well, it's like when the souls of my ancestors whisper in my ear, yeah, mija, that, that notion of like, yeah, that's enough. How, how do you know a pinch is a pinch? Well, cause my grandmother would just do it like this. There was no recipe, right? It was just kind of an in any in any ethnicity your grandmas usually don't measure did your mother cook or does your mom cook my mom learned to cook when she met my dad in the 80s she at that point had been a single mom of two working at a bank and my grandmother was raising my brothers and then she met my dad which he immigrated from mexico to los angeles in the 70s so it was like this heyday of like disco fever and like French cuisine. So my dad was this cultured man. My mom was born and raised in Tijuana. She never had seen the world through my dad's 
glasses and she didn't know how to cook beans she didn't know how to cook rice and my dad was like oh let's have swedish meatballs and will you steam these artichokes and clarify some butter and my mom was like what the hell are you talking about and i remember very vividly as a child having escargot in my house in tj <laughs> and he found a can of snails somewhere and then had my mom make the butter with the parsley and so our house was very different to be in most of the time and then again there was feast or famine for us all the time so there was a famine diet and then there was a feast diet when my dad had a good month it was these crazy Chinese chicken salad that he had seen a recipe for and uh, we learned English watching public television we learned English watching Julia Child and Jacques Pepin on TV and Are You Being Served on the BBC and so my mom was always glued to the TV learning English with us and then I remember like Joy of Cooking cookbook up and Julia Child's cookbook on her counter and just like recipes from magazines torn because she was so adamant of making my dad happy and giving him the food he wanted she was like I'm gonna learn and by my teenage years she's just an incredible chef she's one of those women that has that natural talent now when you look at your pantry and you know maybe the ingredients are more limited I wonder if you can walk me through some things that you might be cooking now that we're stuck at home that would be an inspiration to people who are listening oh it's so funny i'm currently in northern washington kind of holed up in the woods learning archery with my kids and we've been cooking out of the fridge and the last four days so i started the first day we got here there was a pound of ground beef in the fridge that ground beef was turned into egg rolls, which was just cabbage that i had left over that was like wilting and the carrots that were wilting And so I had carrots, cabbage, onion, ground beef, and soy sauce, and whatever ingredients that I can find in the pantry. Chili peppers I put in there, turned it into these little egg rolls, and we had egg rolls and steamed rice for dinner. What did you use for the egg roll wrappers? I I had old egg roll wrappers in the freezer. Okay, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, that's... How many times do you go to the grocery store and buy stuff that you're just like, oh, it ends up in the back of the pantry, ends up in the back of the freezer, that you're like, holy crap, I totally forgot I had this. This is the time where you really start to take everything out and clean it and go, oh, I can totally eat this. Let's figure out how many different ways. I had green goddess dressing in my freezer from an event that I did. And the next day it became a romaine cabbage salad with tomatoes that I had on the counter, an avocado that was about to go sideways. And then that beef from the egg roll wrappers became, with a little bit of green goddess dressing, became green goddess like taco filling. And I made a salad with that. And then the third day was cheeseburger mac. That same ground beef turned into chili. And with macaroni, you know, it's like chili was a can of beans, a can of diced tomatoes, because we always have, everyone always has a can of beans and diced tomatoes, I feel like, in pantries. Just sitting there for a chili that you wanted to make one day or tomatoes for the spaghetti sauce that you very much thought you were going to make a freshly made pasta sauce. And sometimes we just go for the prego. It's totally fine. So I did turn that into a chili, boiled some macaroni, and then we had chili macaroni. And it's just like, I stretched out one pound of beef into four different dishes throughout the week. That is, that's impressive. Um, On each episode of Speaking Broadly, I ask my guest to name an ingredient or product that is better than the hype. So something that people might have overlooked or that they need to know about that's really amazing what comes to mind for you well i would say japanese mayo a thousand percent i love kewpie or kewpie however you say it but really what is 
for me, something that I pull out, like yesterday I made cabbage sauteed with a little bit of salmon that I had in the freezer and yuzu kosho with lime. Yuzu kosho is a condiment that I use all the time in my personal meals. Um, and it's available in every Asian market all over the United States, but not enough people know about it or use it. I don't know. Maybe it's just they don't know what flavor, but it has such depth of flavors, punchiness. It's got chili. It's got acid. It's got salt. I love it on everything. Okay. That sounds great. I'm <laughs> taking notes here. And... At the end of Speaking Broadly, I always ask my guests to give a shout out to a woman they admire in this industry. And I wonder who that would be. Oh, man. So I have a very small group of women here in San Diego that inspire the hell out of me. All business owners, all just amazing, amazing. I call them my coven, like just good, good, solid women that are cheerleaders for each other and for myself. And Laura Johnson. Laura Johnson is the master distiller owner of a distillery called You and Yours in San Diego. And she was turned down so many times for distiller jobs that she decided to start a distillery on her own and now makes some of the best gin and vodka I've ever tasted. And just the drive behind this very young woman, she's not even 30 yet, the drive behind her to succeed and to make a product that she is incredibly proud of and keep it still made in San Diego, not being bought out by a giant conglomerate. It's just so inspiring. So when someone tells you no, I'm the type of person that I love when people tell me no and that I can't do it because then I'm like, watch me do it. I'm going to take pictures. You know, she's the same person. Like, she loves when people tell her she can't do something, and she does it, and she does it with such grace and humbleness. Um, and is there anyone else you'd like to call out? There's the Kulan sisters that own Little Lion Cafe in San Diego. I call myself the illegitimate Kulan sister. They're just such tight-knit family. And then there's Crystal White that owns Wayfair Bakery in San Diego, which is, for me, one of the best bakeries in the United States. And she did it by herself, also was told no. And she's truly makes some of the best bread I've ever tasted in my life. Like right now we're eating through an olive loaf of hers and a sourdough loaf that I had in the freezer. And my daughter has been eating cinnamon toast every single day for the last five days of just her bread. And again, women that have been told no, that have gone through adversity with little to no money and lead with a tender heart. Like it can make you a very jaded person to be told no, 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 that you can't do something. And to have all these women go through it, I mean, I can say the same thing about myself, but, you know, it sounds a little narcissistic to say that it's me, but I see myself in them and they see themselves in me and they help me kind of get through the really rough times. Well, I just, I wanted to thank you so much for joining me. I have loved this conversation and look forward to continuing it. And thank you all of you for listening. And as always, if you enjoy what you hear, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Send me a note. I love getting suggestions of people that you're inspired by who I can have on the air. And have a safe and a healthy week. Take care. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.